0: So as I said, I am not Dave, uh, but Dave did give me his sermon, so you'll still get Dave this morning (laughs) just through me. It's a tag team effort. We try to sort of be a good team together. We are in um, our series, Going Walking with Jesus Through His Life Chronologically. So it's mostly out of Luke, but this morning we're in Matthew chapter 3. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the baptism of Jesus this morning. Please uh, listen carefully as this is God's word. Also, it's a very long sermon, so um, I'll be speaking very quickly. So try to buckle up, keep up, um, all of that. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Thank you for Dr. Silvernail who prepared this for your ministry to him and through him throughout this week. Lord, be with him as he uh, rests and recovers at home, as he worships with us online. But Lord, you have brought us to the gospel of Matthew this morning to experience this epic drama of the life of Christ. Help us to learn more about your son and to use this gospel to cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a text of both great joy, of great joy which leads us to a text of great hardship. Jesus knew both sorrows and joy like us. He identifies with us completely in order that he might be able to save us completely. Help us to consider what it means to forget ourselves and to remember Jesus. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to know Jesus more. Help us to see wonderful things in your word. And as always, for this, we need your grace. Help us to be amazed. Help us to wonder. And so we pray, speak through these words of Matthew today, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus as we spend this year walking with him. For in his name we pray, amen. Who is the greatest? Well, let's consider Richard Johnson. What's your estimation of the man? Was he good? Was he bad? Was he incompetent or brilliant? What was your opinion of him? And as long as we're on the subject, what do you think of Dor- uh, George Dallas or Cabell Breckinridge or Schuyler Koufax? I'm curious how you would rank William Wheeler or Levi Morton, Charles Fairbanks, Albin Barkley, James Sherman, Wil- Henry Wilson, Her- Garrett Hobart, and Elbridge Gerry. Now, I'm reasonably sure that you're like me, and most of you are thinking... Who are these people? (laughs) I've never heard of any of them. I'm not surprised. Uh, Many of us don't remember the names of vice presidents of the United States beyond the last three or four or so. And isn't that interesting? These are very important people. These are people that we would have marked down as meeting. We would have bragged to our friends, I met the vice president of the United States. And yet we forget these important people. And that's the way of time and human nature. The great figures of our days are like bright shooting stars. They shape and shake the world, but their light is fleeting. Even our biggest movie and pop stars, for a brief instant, they light up the lives of their adoring fans, and then they fall from the sky, disappearing from sight, unremembered and unrecalled. Please understand what what I'm saying isn't meant to be a criticism of any age group. Every generation forgets. Which of you can give the first, middle, and last names of all four of your own grandparents? What I'm saying is it's in our nature to long for the world's applause and approval, to hope that our lives will be remembered and respected, but it's the world's nature to forget human accomplishments and to let our legacies wither and wilt away. Even the greatest people can be lost to the great eraser, which is time. But that question, who is the greatest, seems to come up all the time. People argue about who's the greatest president, what is the greatest movie, the greatest song, or the greatest athlete. Giving an answer to the question, who's the greatest, would see music fans locked in a verbal scrimmage As each group fights for supremacy of their own particular singer, Luciano Pavarotti or Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra or Michael Jackson, Johnny Cash or Garth Brooks, Tony Bennett or Beyonce, Aretha Franklin or maybe even Taylor Swift. Who's the greatest? It seems to be an impossible task. Before a person gives an answer, they have to ask, greatest at what? And then, after they've given their answer, they have to be prepared to protect their nominee against a great many people who are equally sure, although they hold completely different opinions. So, can the answer, who's the greatest, ever be answered? It would be a foolish thing for me to bring you this far in the message if I didn't have an answer or Dr. Silvernoe has an answer. And so, of course, we do. Who's the greatest? John the Baptist is the greatest. Disappointed? Some are. Probably most are. But John was the greatest, save Jesus, of course. Before he was born, a prophesying angel said about him Luke in Luke uh, 1, chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. To be, quote, great before the Lord, or as some versions translate it, great in the sight of the Lord, is no small recommendation. But the claim for John being the greatest doesn't stop with the words of an angel. The angel's promise is certified by Jesus himself. In the Gospel of Matthew, the Lord says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And so there you have it. Jesus says, John is the greatest. When I first read that, I wondered why? Why, why is John the greatest? And maybe you were thinking the same thing. I mean, after all, he wasn't the father of many nations like Abraham. He didn't part the Red Sea like Moses. He didn't escape the lion's den like Daniel. He didn't call down fire upon a sacrifice like Elijah. He didn't manage to avoid being roasted like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, exactly what did John do to earn the title greatest? He didn't write psalms like King David. He didn't build the temple like Solomon. What did he do that was so great? I mean if I want to be like John and great in God's eyes what should I do how do I do it how do I be like John It's a hard question because when the Bible speaks of John it gets pretty stingy with details and sparing with verses Well John can't be called the greatest because he's the weirdest I mean eccentric looks odd eating habits and strange clothing he he's not the weirdest I mean look at us we're pretty weird And it can't be because he always said appealing and popular things either. After all, John's message was the need for true repentance before Christ would come. Saying you're a sinner and you're headed for hell is usually not very popular. Nor could John be called the greatest merely because he was a prophet. True, he did foretell the coming of the Christ, the Savior of the world. But there were others in the Old Testament whose ministry lasted longer and whose words, giving guidance to those in, a far, in the far future, were equally direct. And so, Pastor, I can almost hear you asking, I've stayed with you this long, what's the answer? Why was John the greatest? Now, before I give you my reply, I have to tell you that there are some scholars who will disagree with me. And so I've spent some time, he's spent some time thinking about this. I think John is called the greatest because, unlike the rest of us forgetful humans... He never forgot who he was. And more importantly, he never forgot who Jesus was. John never forgot who he was, and he never forgot who Jesus was. Read through Scripture, study history, study the people all around you. How many can say they never, they never forgot who they were, and they never forgot who Jesus is? and it's evident that's evident in Matthew chapter 3 our passage for today and the character of John the greatness of John comes through loud and clear with verses 1 through 12 the announcement in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand for this is he who has spoken of who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make his path straight Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then uh, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. But when many saw When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The very last words at the very end of the Old Testament were these. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5-6, to Behold, I will send you Elijah, The prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's the last thing written in the Old Testament. What was Malachi saying? Elijah had died hundreds of years before Malachi's time, and yet he's saying that Elijah would come. And here is a man who suddenly believe, appears in the desert, lives a rough and solitary life, which is verse 4, which tells us John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And Elijah is described in Second Kings 1 verse 8 like this. He wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist. They look the same, but even more they sound the same. John the Baptist shakes up everyone with his preaching and eventually clashes with the king and his wife, just like Elijah. And of course, John himself denies being both Elijah and the prophet, John chapter 1, 21, and they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And Matthew doesn't seem to regard John as Elijah, but he does depict John as fulfilling Elijah's mission. Jesus spoke of John in Matthew chapter 11, verses 9 to 10. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is, of, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And Jesus confirms his Elijah-like role in his, meaning um, John's, Elijah-like role in Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Israel had not had a prophet for over 400 years, and now it receives its greatest prophet. Calling John, the, uh, John quote, the Baptist somewhat obscures the main thrust of his ministry, which is announcing the judgment that's coming and Jesus' arrival. He's not the Baptist. He's the herald. He's the king's herald. In the ancient world, when royalty was traveling, the roads were were repaired in preparation for them. That's what's meant by prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. But these are not literal roads John is calling for. He's calling for all people to cast off their sinful ways and calling Israel to be ready for its great king to arrive. Jesus' coming was going to be such a radical change that God sent John first. And so John is not so much calling people to individual salvation, but calling the nation to turn back to God and away from its sins so that they might not miss the coming of his kingdom. You might say that John is the law to Jesus' gospel. We must hear the bad news of the law and to be called to deal with our sins before we can hear the good news of the gospel and the forgiveness of those sins. However, just because he's speaking to the nation doesn't mean that we can't apply his words on an individual basis either. Two, after all, he's calling on the people to repent of their sins and then to give proof of that repentance. Because the logical result of a true repentance is to, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he applies that verse to a very specific group of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Actually, even though he addresses them together, they're two very different groups. The Pharisees were a group of religious leaders who were proud of their performance for they thought that they kept, the, they kept God's law as well as they could be kept. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were a group of political leaders who were proud of their power and their position. As rulers in Judea, they held the reins of political power and prestige in their hands, and thus the Pharisees didn't think they needed God's forgiveness, and the Sadducees just didn't think they needed God at all. You see, we fall into the same danger when we're ruled by pride? Do you ever resist or resent criticism, even when it's warranted? Do you defend yourself or strike back when someone tries to point out some failing or fault of yours? Do you ever try to build your own reputation in the eyes of others, however subtle you are about it? And are you more aware of their sins than your own? All of those are symptoms of being a modern-day Pharisee. On the other hand, when we neglect or disbelieve God's power, when we seek worldly success and prominence, we limit God by our own ideas of what he can do and cannot do. Then we are like the Sadducees. To the same degree that we're complacent about ourselves and want to maintain control for ourselves, to the extent that we try to rule our own lives rather than submitting to God's word, we fall into the same net they did. And we don't just do this chasing success either. We sometimes do this in a negative sense, trying to avoid pain or discomfort. It's all the same, trying to control things as if we were God and as if we don't need him. And John's response to both groups is direct and burning with prophetic zeal. He calls them out in verse 7. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? An epitaph his cousin Jesus would echo later on in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And again in Matthew 23, 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? The challenge John has confronted everyone with is to repent. uh, And is now issued That call to repentance is issued to the religious and political elite. And then in stunning contrast, Jesus shows up. The Pharisees thought they were the righteous ones, and John points out that they are not. And now there comes a man who appears before John the Baptist in order to demonstrate righteousness. And that brings us, outside of the crucifixion, to one of the only events in Jesus' life that appears in all four Gospels. And if an event is mentioned in all four Gospels, you know it must be important. And that's important because that event is the baptism, which we see in verses 13 to 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to, refl- to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. For starters, we may, may we all stand side by side with John, who never forgot that he's a sinner in the need of a Savior. Sure of his sins and shortcomings, when Jesus appeared at the Jordan and asked John to baptize him, John honestly and with great humility replied, I need to be baptized by you. And truer words have never been spoken. John may have been great, but that day God's prophet stood before God's Son. And God's spokesman looked upon the world's Savior. That day at the Jordan, John knew he was in the presence of the Christ, true man and true God, born of a virgin, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. John knew he was looking into the face of God's Son, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit had called the universe, the whole universe, into being with the Word, who had reached out to fallen man, with the promise of salvation, and who, even though it meant he would face unjust accusations, unfair punishments, and an unearned death, was fulfilling that plan with redemption, which would buy humanity back from sin, death, and Satan. John protests the prospect of baptizing Jesus for three reasons. First, John is a lesser person. How can he, the lesser, baptize Jesus the greater? Second, he offers a lesser baptism. John offers water, the symbol of purification. But Jesus offers the Holy Spirit, who indwells believers and empowers them to break with sin. And third, Jesus has no need of water baptism. John preaches a baptism of repentance, but Jesus hasn't sinned, and therefore doesn't need to repent. So why should John, give Jesus a baptism he doesn't need. And so Jesus replies in verse 15, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He's telling John that his ministry is not yet at hand. It's still John's hour. In three years, Jesus will complete his ministry and institute his baptism. But first he must teach, heal, suffer, die, and rise again. Then he will charge his apostles to baptize, saying in Matthew chapter 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Meanwhile, to fulfill all righteousness, John must baptize Jesus. Jesus knows his baptism is the Father's will. By being baptized, Jesus identifies with his people and their sin. The nation of Israel, the people of God, need to repent. And Jesus is part of that nation, part of that people. And so Jesus comes to be baptized with them. He doesn't separate himself from them. Also, Jesus' baptism is an affirmation of John's ministry. By By being baptized, it was as if Jesus was saying, John, I want you to baptize me. Because it will show that your message was true, your ministry was true, and it will link me with your ministry of repentance. Which is, to, and, which is also to pronounce the coming of the Messiah. And so that's the first thing that his baptism does to fulfill all righteousness. It also serves to relieve John's doubts. We know that John himself had been unsure about the identity of the Messiah up until that, this time. In fact, we're told elsewhere in the Gospels that John had his doubts later on. Jesus didn't quite turn out to be what he was expecting. And he had to ask the Lord on at least one occasion, are you the one or is there another? This baptism was the Lord Jesus' gift to John to reassure him, yes, I am the one. John, remember you baptized me. Remember, I'm the one you were preaching about. And so this baptism also serves to confirm the message of John. It symbolizes the Lord's identification with his people and their plight. It's as if Jesus is saying, "John, yes, John's message is true. You are sinners. You do need re- uh, redemption. And my baptism is the sign that I'm identifying with you. It's also a sign that Jesus is the Messiah. He's publicly showing that he's the Messiah who comes to take away the sins of the world. And that's why he enters into baptism, even though he's sinless. For he's the Messiah who comes to forgive the sin of his people. This is the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. Jesus, John's ministry is in full swing. But the first public action of our Lord is to humble himself, to think not of himself, but of others. He's not pointing at himself, but at us. It's, I want to be with you, not you need to be with me. Our Lord was humble. He calls us the way of humility, while the world tells us that we ought to act otherwise. But Jesus' actions remind us of the importance of humility. It was required for his obedience on our behalf. And he says to his disciples that all those who follow after him must learn to humble themselves and serve others. But the story of Jesus' baptism doesn't end there. A couple of amazing things happen next, and they're equally filled with meaning. And the first amazing thing is verse 16, the anointing. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The baptism also serves to show that God has anointed and appointed and equipped Christ for ministry. The baptism is a sign of God's approval of the Lord Jesus. It's a sign that God has chosen the Lord Jesus to be a Messiah on the behalf of his people. And so, the baptism fulfills all righteousness because it is a sign that Christ himself is willing to take on the role of our mediator. He's willing to be our redeemer. In the baptism, the Lord steps down. He enters humbly and receives baptism. He acknowledges, I, receive, I will receive all the humiliation necessary to fulfill my work on behalf of my people. I will take any humiliation necessary in order to save my people from their sins. The baptism shows Jesus' willingness, willing acceptance of his messianic role. His baptism was an act received on our behalf as a mediator of the covenant of grace. He didn't need the baptism of repentance, and he didn't repent on our behalf, but he did identify himself with his people as the one who would be the sin bearer and as the one whose baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, would bring renovation of our hearts and lives. So, Jesus was baptized. And then he rose from the water, and heaven opened. John said Jesus would baptize with fire, for fire symbolizes, uh, for fire symbolizes uh, judgment and purity and purification, which are both roles that Jesus will have. Yet the symbol at Jesus' baptism isn't fire, it's a dove, a gentle and harmless bird. Yet biblically it is often used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus to empower him for ministry we're immediately reminded that from now on, there will be a constant emphasis in the Gospels, that to do his father's will and to save, the people, uh, to save the people his father had given him and to make his father known was the great purpose of his life. And in all that he did, he did by the power and with the aid of the Holy Spirit. In the very next chapter, we'll read that he went to his great temptation under the leading of the Holy Spirit. And Luke tells us that he faced that temptation full of the Holy Spirit. And adds that immediately after, Jesus commenced his public preaching, returning to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Such remarks at the beginning of the Lord's public ministry indicate that from the beginning to the end of his great work, he was supported and directed by the Holy Spirit. The scripture says that he performed his miracles by the power of the Spirit, and so he taught, and so he preached, and so he lived by the power of the Holy Spirit, always seeking to do the will of the Father in heaven. And as we go through the Gospels, we'll read things like Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 18, and Jesus returned in the the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through, uh, through all the surrounding country. And then we read him saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering, and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And finally, we see not only the Father's anointing of the Son, but the Father's identification of the Son. God tells us who the Lord Jesus is in this passage. He tells us what the Father thinks of the Son. And so the second amazing thing we see is verse 17, the confirmation. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This statement now completes the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. Matthew has already said that this gospel, uh, that in this gospel, um, in Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He will save his people from their sins. And now, that he's, now we know that he's the unique and beloved Son of God. For 2,000 years from the time of Abraham, we have been waiting to see the unveiling of the one who will be the deliverer of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, we are told that the Father would say of him, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, we read, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The heavens opened at the baptism of Jesus, and the Father's voice is heard from from heaven, and he says, This is my beloved Son. Two millennia of waiting were fulfilled. And the Father has said, This is the one You've been waiting for. This is my son. And we must remember that as we work through the life of Christ, as we see Jesus despised and misunderstood and rejected and crucified and dead and buried, and when we see the world hating him and ignoring him and, or thinking that he's crazy, we must hold on to Christ still because we must remember that the Father does not see him that way. He is the beloved son. And every time we see the world despise him, we ought to remember that the father loves him. Any parent in this room knows what it would be like to watch your child despised. Any parent in this room knows what it is to love that child with all your heart, even if he is rejected by their contemporaries. We would stand in the gap. We would endure the tension of standing up to the face of opposition and suffering. And why? Because we love them. And every time we see Jesus despised by men, we ought to remember what the Father has said of him. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, the aftermath of his baptism clearly indicates another, if not the primary purpose of it in the Lord's own life and in the history of our, our, our redemption. His baptism by John served as his ordination to his office as the Christ. He was his it was his outward coronation as the prince of peace, the occasion of his official public installation as the king of kings. And inaugurations can be impressive. But no presidential inauguration, no royal coronation no matter how grand can ever be compared to what has what was given the Lord Jesus Christ at the commencement of his ministry. The entire Trinity, one God and three persons, gathered at the Jordan on that day. God the Father spoke aloud his love and approval of his Son, and and God the Holy Spirit descended upon him, who is God the Son, in the form of a dove. The significance of these events is perfectly clear. Jesus is being commissioned by his Father and equipped by the Holy Spirit for the work which lies before him. And in this coronation and confirmation, God uses a strange man, John the Baptist. Strange, but great. His ministry was winding down and Jesus' ministry was starting up, but John was just the man for the job. And so don't forget who we are. We're sinners. At the beginning of this message, I told you that John never forgot who he was, and he never forgot who Jesus was. Read through scripture, study history, or the people around you, how many can say they never forgot who they are, and they never forgot who Jesus is? Look at scripture. Adam and Eve forgot. In their desire for greatness, they tried to usurp God's authority and ate the forbidden fruit. Abraham thought he could do a better job of providing an heir for himself than God could. Well-known people like Moses, Samson, David, Solomon, and others, a who's who of famous biblical names, forgot who they were. But John never did. He never forgot that his job was to prepare the way for the Savior's coming and to call people from their sins. Years ago, when the famous conductor Leonard Bernstein was asked, what is the hardest instrument in in the orchestra to play? He said, second violin. Then he added, I can get plenty of first violins, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. John knew from the beginning his job was to be the second fiddle to the Savior. It was a job that John did with integrity. He didn't pretend that he was an inconsequential nobody. Long ago, the the prophets had described and defined his role. He was to be the forerunner. God's appointed voice crying in the wilderness, Isaiah 40, chapter 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Not a small road, not a beaten path, not a dirt road, a highway. John knew that he was fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, which he said he would call uh, he would cultivate hearts for the forgiving grace which would be planted by the sacrificing Savior. Knowing who he was, John boldly told people to turn from their sins so that they, they might beg the Lord for forgiveness. By the Spirit's will, people came to hear what John had to say. They came from, Jeru- from Jerusalem, from Judea, from all over. They wanted to hear John's message, which was always the same Don't forget who you are, you're sinners. You violated the Lord's command in thought, word, and deed. If you're to be saved, it will be only by the grace of God and through the sacrifice of his son. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees, people whom we would call respected and honored pillars of the community, were warned. Don't think when you stand before God that you're superior or that you're doing God a favor. You are beggars, lepers, and sinners. And those are instructive words for us today who come here put together and well thought out. We are beggars, lepers, and sinners. We need what the Savior offers, which is forgiveness and faith, pardon and peace. John never forgot who he was. Like John, we need to remember who we are and who Jesus is. And who is Jesus? He is everything that we are not. Each week, the Lord allows Dr. Dave or I, or some weeks, both of us, to speak to you. And we're supposed to be wise, especially Dave, since he's older and grayer than me. But we would be among the first to say that we're not. When people ask us for counsel, we don't have all the answers. We can offer, at best, educated guesses. When people think kindly or speak kindly of us, we know that we are sad sinners inside. How well do you know yourself? Do you know yourself well enough to say the same, to know that you don't have all the answers, to know that you are a sinner in need of grace? Maybe you know who you are, helpless, hopeless, and harried, defeated, discouraged, and despairing. If you do, I pray you also know who Jesus is. The Lord never leaves us in our sin. He always moves us to look not only at ourselves, but also at him. Who is Jesus? He's the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. I pray that you believe on him who has the answers to your difficult questions, that you trust him who gives the right advice when you reach life's unpredictable paths, that you lean on him who sacrificed his all so that you might be forgiven. If you remember who Jesus is, I give thanks. But if this day you don't know the Savior and the salvation he has won for you, if you have for some reason forgotten his love and forgiveness, I would like to help you remember. Max Lucado tells a great story about shopping with his daughter when they were traveling. He writes, Jesus did for us what I did for one of my daughters in a shop at New York uh, LaGuardia Airport. And the sign above the ceramic pieces read, Do not touch. But the wanting was stronger than the warning, and she touched, and it fell. And by the time I looked up, 10-year-old Sarah was holding two pieces of a New York City skyline. Next to her was an unhappy store manager. Over them both was the written rule, Between them hung a nervous silence. She had no money. He had no mercy. So I did what dads do. I stepped in. How much do we owe you, I asked. How was it that I owed anything? Simple. She was my daughter. And since she couldn't pay, I did. Since you and I cannot pay, Christ did. We've broken so much more than souvenirs. We've broken commandments, promises, and worst of all, we've broken God's heart. But Christ sees our plight. With the law on the wall and shattered commandments on the floor, he steps near like a father and offers a gift like a savior. What do we owe? We owe God a perfect life, perfect obedience to every command, the commands of humility, honesty, Integrity, and we can't deliver. But Christ can, and Christ did. His plunge into the Jordan is a picture of his plunge into our sin. His baptism announces, let me pay. To come near to Jesus, to come near to a perfect love, and a perfect love to restore all things. Jesus will take all the broken things in your life and restore them. And all your sad stories will come untrue. Don't forget who you are. You're a sinner. And don't forget who He is. He's a Savior and your King. Think about that, and you need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Our Lord and God, Thank you that you have given us a king. In this passage, we see your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We see him as you want us to see him, as humble, as obedient, as glorious, as beloved by you, equipped by the Spirit, by measure to do ministry, to do battle with Satan and with his kingdom on our behalf. But we know in the end that in the gates of We know that in the end, the gates of hell will not prevail against your son's kingdom. And we will safely be within its walls. And we know that we can only be there by faith. And so, O Lord, if there is anyone among us this day who comes here not trusting in Christ, we would ask that your spirit, that by your spirit, that you would draw that person to yourself. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that they might embrace the beloved son. Help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.